You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. I've got my co-host Eurosimos in the house with me as always. This is episode 106, and we have Robert Breedlove in the house today. The topic which we're discussing today, I think, is of great importance. I think it's incredibly necessary, particularly for truth seekers, to really begin to wrap their heads around these topics of the economy, of capitalism, of inflation, of Bitcoin, of what is money, and begin to really simplify and understand what this means and how it impacts you in a deeper way. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you all. Um, Just before we get into that, our private membership community, Friends of the Truth, is absolutely amazing. If you want to get to know us, if you want to get involved with three calls a month, if you want to join the most incredible community of truth seekers, then head to friendsofthetruth.co to learn more about that. In the next couple of weeks, Erasmus and I will be making an announcement and opening the doors to Rise Above the Herd 5. I know many have been asking and eagerly awaiting um, when the next round of that is going to open as well. So you can head to riseaboveTheHerd.co and join the waitlist, but we'll be making an announcement to open applications formally in a couple of weeks as well. Again, thanks so much for all your support. We love what we do and we get to do it because of the fact that you guys listen. So much appreciated and enjoy this episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. Really looking forward to this conversation today. We have the amazing Robert Breedlove in the house. Robert Breedlove is a freedom maximalist, ex-hedge fund manager and philosopher in the Bitcoin space. Robert now hosts the What Is Money show where he engages in deep conversations with some of the world's most prolific thinkers. Robert, thanks for being here for the truth, man. Happy to be here, guys. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. One way we always love to start these conversations, particularly with new guests, is I'd like to dive into your own personal hero's journey a little bit. What are the major rites of passage that you really experienced in your life that, I guess, allowed and facilitated for you to be the person that you stand here today being? Wow, that is a hell of a question. Um, (laughs) I don't know where to begin. Um, I guess I could just name a few things that I feel like have been instrumental in my character development. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I always talk, um, I've always been a very curious person. I've talked about this on other podcasts, but my my mom really pushing me towards education, towards self-study, towards reading. Yeah. I think that's been very very much uh, defining for my life. Um, I would also add that I, I guess when I was 11 years old, I started doing, I was doing wrestling and football. And when I was actually in the off season, I was going to strength training, trying to condition for for wrestling and football. Um, there was a gentleman there named C. Fowler, who was an Olympic weightlifter, competitive Olympic weightlifter. And so I had a friend that started training with him and getting really good results. So I started training with him and that led to this, let's see, five, six year career in Olympic weightlifting. So I was training, you know, twice a day, morning and evening. Um, I ended up competing internationally. I was very thoroughly obsessed with the sport. Like we would, you know, watch videos about it all the time, draw pictures, you're visualizing the technique. and this sport, if you've seen CrossFit, like the explosive overhead lifts that people do, yeah, uh, that's what we were doing competitively. So we do snatch and clean and jerk. 
And yeah, that seems to be very formative in just goal setting, visualization, discipline, you know, like it was a very disciplined lifestyle. And I, I carry that into adulthood now. I, I strive to, to live a pretty disciplined lifestyle. Um, not quite as rigorous <laughs> as it was when I was a kid, but, you know, doing my best. Um, trying to think what else here. Um, I've had some really good mentors, you know, some people that just were very effective at their craft, typically in business. And um, I've been fortunate enough to interact with people that I think are, that I view as super competent in their their domain of expertise. And just to be around people like that, you know, to learn how they do what they do and how they think, um, their little nuggets of wisdom that they're they're so kind to share here and there. Um, it was all all very helpful for me. I don't know if that's exactly where you were going with that question, but I was just giving you what came to mind. No, man, it's all good. We appreciate it. Um, it's, it's, it's personal to you and I think it's a great answer. Um, so you host a podcast called the What Is Money podcast. So I know we have a limited time here, but I mean, is it too general for me to ask you, Robert, what is, what is money? <laughs> yeah, it's a huge question. Um, one that we spend quite literally hundreds of hours exploring on the show. And, yeah. um, you know, I have a document with many answers to this question, like over 50, five, zero. I've blogged about several of them, maybe like a dozen or so. Um, very seemingly simple question, but it definitely opens up into this cavernous kind of philosophical rabbit hole. Yeah. And um, maybe one useful way to conceptualize money or one of the useful framings or definitions is that money is the language of value. And so if we, if we try to parse that apart a little bit, language, somewhat obvious, like we, the three of us are all running the open source software called English right now. Um, this is a, it's a software package, right? And yep. it only works to the extent that we have, that we share consensus on terms. So when I say the word term, right, I have to assume that you have in your mind roughly the same meaning as I am projecting. That's what makes me, lets me be able to make noises with my face hole and you can decrypt it in your own mind and we can communicate, right? It's a very powerful software package. Uh, people don't typically think about language that way, that it's a technology, but it is. Um, I would also add in here things like numeracy, right? Mathematics is another one of these very powerful software packages that we don't think about a lot, but it's something that distinguishes man from animal in a lot of ways. And so money is the language of value. Uh, value is a bit of a mysterious term. I think Ayn Rand has a great definition for value. And she says, value is that which man acts to gain or keep. So it's the whatever we are orienting human action towards. Mm -hmm. uh, you could say actually that any action you're taking in a particular moment is an expression of your highest value, right? We all have an internalized hierarchy of preferences or values, things we want to do, right? And whatever you're doing in that moment comes at the necessary exclusion of all other things you could be doing, right? Action, any particular path of action is mutually exclusive to all other potential paths of action. 
So money is something that is communicating. It takes all, everyone has their own internalized hierarchy of value. We're acting in the world, expressing what we value. And money is this strange sort of linguistic software that compresses all those preferences, which are just, they're ordinal. So first, second, third, fourth. It turns all that ordinal data into a cardinal value, which is the price. So you can actually put a number to the worth of something, right? The worth of a commodity, the net worth of an individual, right? In a, in a purely economic sense. So one useful way to describe money is as this software package that we're all running that lets us transform our individually held preferences into a collective data point that we can all orient ourselves against, which is the market price. And it, that sounds super abstract, so I'll try to bring it down to earth a little bit. If you are a copper producer, and you see that the price of copper suddenly spikes. You don't need to know why. You don't need to know that maybe a copper mine in Chile collapsed, right? The supply was cut. All you need to know is that the preferences of humans across the world competing in the same market relative to the supply of available copper has suddenly caused that price to move up. So now you as a producer have a direct financial incentive to produce more copper. If the price goes up, well, then all of a sudden you can afford more exotic forms of mining, for instance. And on the other end of the market, as a consumer, when the price goes up, you're incentivized to use less or to use substitutes. Maybe you can use bronze instead of copper mm -hmm. or whatever it may be. So the market price is this miraculous coordination tool that no humans need to share a narrative or a story about what happened at all. We can just mathematically express the real conditions of commodities and assets in the world relative to the preferences of all market actors. And so we get this like unbelievable amount of data compression, right? There's all these things in the world that are affecting the copper industry, logistics, uh, energy, mining, uh, tariffs, you know, there's countless things that influence the price of copper. But all you need to know as a producer is that the price moved. Right, So you get this unparalleled capacity for data compression. And that is necessary for running the distributed computing process we call the market. You have to have accurate prices such that markets can satisfy human wants, which is to say solve problems, basically. So without money, you know, without the language of value, the market process is not possible. And we are really reduced in our capacity to increase our standard of living, to increase the satisfaction of human wants, to solve more problems. So it's hard to overstate how important of a tool that is, even though it can be a bit difficult to describe. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if you've got anything to say, but uh, we can elaborate more on this, but I was just curious because money is so important. And yet we've been conditioned, many people have been conditioned to think money is the root of all evil. And so I'm curious your your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, this, I'm glad you bring that up because there is a misconception right there. It's, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money 
is the root of all evil. Not that money is the root of all evil. The Bible references money thousands of times. Uh, talks about the importance of honest weights and measures. And if you look at Christ in particular, the story of Christ, right? The archetypal human consciousness, right? Meeting betrayal with compassion and hatred with love and just just a purely a perfect human essentially what does this what does it tell us that the one time christ loses his shit in the bible is on the money changers people that are tampering with the weights and measures they were actually using to coordinate the market process there's only one time that man goes into full rage mode and it's against the money changers which today we call central bankers so that was a bit of an aside, but to answer the question in particular, I would agree that the love of money or the love of worldly things can be a very reliable pathway to evil, right? If you consider that evil is willingly afflicting on someone, like something in your own self-consciousness, you know, you would not enjoy, you know, would hurt you. If you willingly inflict that on another for worldly gain, right? To get more stuff, more food, more money, whatever it is, that seems to be a, a pretty reliable pathway to evil. And I think it also speaks to the tremendous power of incentives to shape human action. And when I see Christ flipping out on the money changers, it, again, if it's if money is the language of value. It's as if you're attacking language itself, and which is something we've seen done by a lot of aspiring dictators across time, a lot of wokest and modernity, uh, attacking definitions like man and woman, like all of these things. If you attack language or money, again, if money's language of value, this is the mechanism by which we adapt ourselves to reality, right? Reality is always changing. It's this infinitely fluid and complex domain. We're constantly trying to adapt to it in ways that are prosperous for us, right? We're trying to satisfy more human wants in the face of all this uh, un un unknown, right? All this complexity. If you attack the medium by which we adapt to reality, which is either language or money, you totally undermine the entire human enterprise, no matter what it is. So this is how I would interpret um, the importance of money and the reason Christ flipped out. But, but there's a key difference there, right? It's like the importance of a tool to appreciate and use it properly does not mean loving the pursuit of that tool for its own sake. So um, we have to distinguish between, I guess, just the purpose of a tool, right? The, the money will not bring you happiness. You cannot accumulate more money and just become happy by virtue of possessing it, but it is an indispensable tool for market for the market process to work. And the market process is what satisfies human wants. It's what creates innovation and it's what creates wealth and abundance in the world. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, you brought up, I guess, Ayn Rand earlier. I mean, she said the verdict you, pr you pronounce upon money, the, which is the source of your livelihood, is the verdict you pronounce upon your life. You know, So mm. if we think of money as the means of one's survival, then is isn't that simply a love of self? Isn't isn't wouldn't that be a love of um, my potential in 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 terms of my pursuit of it in that regard? What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I like Ayn Rand because she kind of she presents this much needed counterpoint where a lot of people that consider themselves compassionate or and I think we all have this to some extent. Not maybe not everyone, but most people seem to have this general orientation towards the world that they would like to do good in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you want to do good in a way that satisfies your own self-interest in the process. That's the ideal, right? What's this term? Ikigai. You guys heard of this term where it's yep. like what you're good at, what the world needs, what you have experience in at this this you know center point in this Venn diagram. But Rand's making a, a pretty strong point. I think that self-interest is a very important part of that equation. You can't just be selfless. That's not enough. There needs to be self-interestedness too to balance um, how things get done in the world, right? You can't pour from an empty cup as some wise man once said. Like You can't just be selfless. There has to be a self-interested component to the market process. Hmm. You look like you wanted to say something. Yeah, I was going to say like, and if one is trying to continually pour from an empty cup, like what's that doing to themselves psychologically in terms of building resentment right. and guilt, etc. It's like, what's yes. the real motivation when someone says, oh, I'm doing this out of love? Yes. Under the guise of selflessness or altruism, etc. But what's the true motivation is, I think, is the question that Rand really proposed there. I agree with that. And this, I think it's very pragmatic to trust human self-interest. You know, it's very reliable. I don't want, if someone's going to bring me a proposal of some kind and they're like, hey, I want to do this thing. We're going to do all these things for you. We don't want anything in return. I don't trust that arrangement. I want to know where their interests lie. Like, even if they're being honest with me and totally forthright, like I, the way I look at the world, I'm going to be inherently distrustful until I understand what their take is. So, and that's, I think you can generalize that to market participation overall that uh, what did Adam Smith say in the wealth of nations that it's not the goodwill or altruism of the baker that provides customers their daily bread. He's doing it out of his own self-interest. So we want a world where people pursue their individual self-interest. What we also want though, is for that pursuit of individual self-interest to not uh, negatively impact someone else's pursuit of their own individual self-interest. So this is why I always try to hone my work into the idea of consent, the idea of private property, the idea of inviolable ownership. So if I'm free to go out into the world and make things of value, right? Plant a garden, build a business, um, provide you services of any kind and you are free to do the same. And then the idea of private property or ownership is that you then deserve by virtue of justice, right? If justice means people getting what they deserve, shouldn't you, don't you deserve to keep the things of value you yourself produce through work or through trade? I mean, that's just like the very basic premise of private property. And the follow-on of that is, that is the right limiting principle, right? This is the the proper limiting principle for individuals to pursue their own self-interest, accumulate all the assets and wealth that they want, so long as they respect the private person and property of other people, that I do not acquire wealth 
by taking or stealing or coercing or acting violently towards anyone else. I only engage in reciprocal, consensual relationships and exchange. That is, that's what we've been trying to get to, right? This is the 1215 Magna Carta King John signed. The principles and exclusive scope, philosophical scope of government were life, liberty, and inviolable property. And that word property is so tricky. I'm, 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 yeah. I think I'm giving up on it. I think I'm going with ownership because pro- property confuses people. Just the idea of ownership itself, that the actions you take in the world that create things of value, you should have the exclusive rights to those things, as should I, as should everyone else. And we should all be left free to exchange with one another the fruits of our labor. Yeah. And this is what creates the economic division of labor. This is what allows us to become more productive, right? So we get an economy, which means we get more outputs per unit of input. We accomplish greater results with less efforts, like saying the same thing in a different way. That is the magic of the marketplace, that human beings operating in concert are more productive than they are operating in isolation. But that process will only work so long as we engage in this normative structure of private property yeah that you keep what you earn i keep what i earn like very simple but we don't have that today like taxation is a violation of this principle inflation is a violation of this principle regulation is a violation of this principle confiscation war vi- like you can go down you can go on and on and on yeah we have not fully implemented the principle of purely consensual exchange in the world. Therefore, we don't have private property in a pure sense. We still have this element of socialized property, which is basically systemic theft. And the largest institution of systemic theft in the world is the central bank. When they print money, they're stealing assets from the savers of dollars and reallocating those assets to people getting the newly printed money first. And this is why I think central banking is like core to the evil in the world today. Yeah. Yeah. One way I try to, I guess, explain, you know, the importance of private property to individuals is like, even like in a hunter-gatherer situation, if I was to, you know, forage my own fruit, food, or, you know, my own meat, whatever it might be, and someone else comes along and claims to have a right to that, Mm. that's actually threatening my survival because that private property is is now the means of my survival. Right? Yes. The means of my production is the means of my survival. And ultimately, that threat is the cornerstone of slavery. Yes. Oh, I mean, taking the words out of my mouth in a way. I would define a slave as someone who has a 100% effective tax rate, which means that all the fruits of their labor do not belong to them. They go, they're 100% taxed and... yeah taken by a taxing authority. On the other end of that spectrum, someone, which we don't really have many someones with a 0% effective tax rate, but we do have sovereign nations, right? The United States doesn't pay tax to anyone else. It has a 0% effective tax rate. Well, we refer to countries today, nation states as sovereigns for that reason. So you could now plot the plight of modern man right on that spectrum. What is your effective tax rate? That's what percentage of a slave you are. And like it's, it's a bitter pill to swallow. And people hate, they resist it. Like, what do you mean? 
who's going to build the roads? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? Um, we, you know, first of all, government doesn't build roads. They hire private contractors. They spend stolen money to do it. It's somewhat obvious that you're going to be less uh, careful with money that you didn't earn. I mean, we just know this very basically. And so, so like in, yeah. in Las Vegas, they call this a free roll, right? If someone's going to give you the money to gamble on the craps table, you're just going to take a really high risk because you, you have no skin in the game, right? You didn't earn that money. The same is true when someone's spending stolen proceeds. They don't have any skin in that game. So it's very easy to be uh, profligate, you might say. And I would just like to highlight one other component to this that we often talk about private property rights, which again, I'm going to just go with ownership mm -hmm. is kind of a, a better term for that. Very seldomly do we stop to consider that private property rights are the one side of the same coin of private property responsibilities. Because if you, basically what we're saying is when you have ownership in an asset, you own a car, right? You have the exclusive right to enjoy the features of that car. You also have the exclusive right to exclude others from enjoying the features, right? You can say, maybe you'll give your friend a ride. That's nice of you to do. But you can also not give the guy, the homeless guy that wants to jump in your car a ride. You have the right to say no. Um, if you want to keep enjoying the features of that asset, in this case, an automobile, you must also consider that you are simultaneously responsible for taking care of that asset for, for maintenance and upkeep on the automobile. So when we debase currency or we engage in taxation, not only are we destroying individuals' rights or individual ownership over the means to their survival, as you described, but you're also deprecating responsibility itself. Yeah. You know, and this is, this is ancient. Aristotle said this. If, if you take that to the extreme, Aristotle said, when everyone owns everything, nobody takes care of anything. There's no incentive for individuals to take care of assets when you've just socialized ownership to the state or, or everyone owns it. You know, it's, it's, it's public property. That's equivalent to destroying any incentive to take, take care of it whatsoever. And I think, I mean, this is a, a tangent, but you could read Rothbard on this in The Ethics of Liberty. He makes a strong argument that improving the integrity of ownership is actually the solution to the environmental crisis. Because what happens right now is you have these areas of the world, like the ocean, that are not privately owned, right? These are just, um, this is the tragedy of the commons at scale. It's profitable to just throw your pollution in the ocean for many companies because no, the ocean doesn't sue you. The ocean doesn't do anything about it, right? It just takes the garbage. But if we assume that the entire world was privately owned by individuals, right? That we had this, these property rights and responsibilities traceable down to an individual level. Now, if you decide to dump pollution in the ocean or my, my um, parcel of the ocean, or maybe it's into my river, mm -hmm. that I will actually sue you, right? I will, I, will, I will come after you, right? And that forces you as a would-be polluter to now consider the cost of pollution. Whereas if there's no one to do that, if there's just this public property that no one's going to sue you for dumping on, you don't have to worry about that. You just dump the pollution and move on. 
So to force producers to impute the cost of pollution into their operations, my argument, which I'm I'm echoing from Rothbard, is you need really strong private property. Really, you need full private ownership of the means of production and and ownership of resources in the world. Simply put, there's no motivation to care or protect for anything if it belongs to no one. When you debase private property rights, you debase private property responsibility. That's a big point. I'm I'm curious, how would that go about in your view to be to like auction off parts of the Pacific Ocean? Like how how would that look in actuality? Because it's pretty large. It's pretty large. And you know, you could say that maybe just by virtue of technological reality, we haven't done it yet. Um, but you know, look how much uproar there is among environmentalists, uh, like Leonardo DiCaprio, right? What is he, his number one thing in life is let's clean up the ocean. I don't think it's a feasible venture until you really think about the economic incentives involved with caretaking, taking care of something like the ocean, right? It's three quarters of the earth's surface. It's massive. If you don't give someone financial skin in the game and incentive to take care of it, it's not going to get done. You cannot do this with legislation or law. It will never happen. And I mean, that's my opinion. It's somewhat radical because most environmentalists think we need more government, more legislation, more taxation. And I'm advocating for the exact opposite. It's like, no, you need less violations of private property, much stronger ownership. And this just natural incentive to enjoy the features of something, but only that's something that you take care of, right? And that, that it, it's important to always remember that we use all these abstractions to describe ourselves, right? Nation states, companies, uh, conservative, liberal, like all these different groupings we put ourselves in. But at the end, in the ultimate final analysis of reality, it's individuals acting in the world, individuals deciding what means to use to pursue what ends? There's no United Nations making a decision. There's no United States making a decision. It's individuals that are acting. So we have to curate our incentive structure for individuals. It's, it's, it's a hypothetical, but I think the basis of the argument is correct, you know. And I mean, I can just speak for myself as well. Like, I grew up working in family businesses. Um, and in, in that, in that kind of situation, regardless of how much input one individual has, um, you're working towards a common goal. So the incentive isn't relative to my input. Now, as an entrepreneur, the amount of work I do, you know, is, is, is equivalent to what I'm going to receive as well. Whereas in that situation previously, the pie is going to be cut the same way, um, regardless in, in, in the one common machine, um, so to speak. So I cared far less about my effort. Right, you, mm-hmm. I cared sure. far less about you know how focused I was, about how efficient I was, about how effective I was. Mm-hmm. But now, when I wear the total responsibility in a more of an entrepreneurship role now, then everything's. I care far more about everything. Right, I do the yes. best that I possibly can um, all the time because yes. because of the incentive, the responsibility also um, is far more important to me as well. Obviously, one hundred percent. This is why I love the word ownership over property because it's applicable beyond just the economics domain. Like Mm. we want to take ownership of the things we've done in life, right? People will say this often. Like if you make a mistake, just own it, you know, or, or often I've heard entrepreneurs say they want 
their employees to think like owners, right? You want your staff to think like owners. You have to this make idea, yeah. this this idea of just an ownership mentality, I think it's so important. If we really want, if we actually care about the ecological preservation of our world, yeah. then you want people to act like owners in that world. You want your staff, eight billion people that we are. We want people that take an ownership relationship with nature. And it's it's tricky because people, you know, this this very leftist, wokest thing almost views people as like a parasite on the planet. And they're like, oh, we need less people and more, like tell people what to do. Um, it's very anti-human, I guess. And the, the view that I'm trying to orient, I'm the counterpoint I'm trying to make is the metric should be human flourishing first and foremost. And I think the proper means to the end of human flourishing is this symmetry of rights and responsibility that's enshrined in the ancient principle of private property. Mm. That would be my argument. Yeah. Well, I mean, in all of life, in all of nature, like the most important thing is that organism survival. So of course, socialism is the anti-life when you look at it through that lens. Right. And socialism is a policy of institutionalized aggression against private property. That's how it is properly defined. It's again, we could say property is a bad word. I'm still trying to get away from it, but I'm stuck yeah. in that, that, that paradigm. It's individualized private property or it's socialized public property. Yeah. And it's a spectrum. The closer you move to individualized ownership, the more symmetry of rights and responsibilities we have in the world, the more, Easily, I can discern that my self-interest stops where your self-interest begins, right? We, we mediate conflicts over resources via private property. But to the extent that we move opposite on that spectrum towards socialized public property, there's no symmetry. We've obfuscated the whole thing. And what ends up happening is you get Soviet Russia, yeah, right? You get the state owning everything and extremely bad outcomes for human flourishing. Yeah. And also like the mentality of, you know, the people that systems like that breed are are those that feel within themselves that they're unable to produce. They feel as though they have nothing great to offer. You know, they feel mediocre in in, in general. So, you know, what's what's the kind of psychological symptom of pushing that kind of symptom on individuals as well? Um, You know, if, if if one believes that how much they receive is equivalent to their need as opposed to their production. I think you're intuiting something very important here. I have um, an episode with Matthias Desmond. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called yep. The Psychology of Totalitarianism, um, really focusing on mass psychosis, how how it happens, the, the problems with it, et cetera. And we had a really good discussion about this very thing, like how the violation of private property or the socialization of property can actually contribute to mass psychosis. Is one of the things he describes in there a lot is that people losing touch with reality, right? And as we kind of described language earlier, it's a tool we're using to stay in touch with reality, uh, both describing objective reality and communicating about subjective reality. Mm-hmm. If that tool doesn't work, then obviously we're going to be out of touch. I think you could look at, again, we said money was something the language of value, when you debase money, you're violating private property. So you're, you're, 
this this communication system that's intended to share accurate messages to to facilitate adaptation when that's under attack people are literally losing touch with reality yeah right like you're actually not like you go to perform an action and you expect a certain roughly a, a result within a certain uh, span of values, but that action, the feedback is not there. You're not getting proper feedback. So I think there's a deep point to be made that the more rapidly we violate private property or ownership, yeah, the more quickly we drive ourselves insane individually and collectively. Yeah. And, um, well, I mean, you, you made you made the correlation between money and language earlier. It's like distorting, you know, fifty percent of the English language or taking away fifty percent of the words, right? Exactly. It's like the ability exactly. to communicate is going to be incredibly severed. Yeah. And when you look at the ascent of authoritarians, let's say historically, or aspiring authoritarians, the first two things this can't be a coincidence, right? The first two things they need to control to start to cast this spell over the people mm. is they have to control the press, the media, yep. and they have to control the money. Yeah. So again, they have to control these linguistic tools by which people adapt to reality and see through bullshit. If I'm going to be an, a dictator and put you in my little private realm of bullshit where I'm the God King and you're all my peons, I need to stop those two tools from working. So it, it you know, it's a bit abstract, but man, I can't, I just don't think that's a coincidence. No, neither. Um, you mentioned inflation earlier. I feel like that's something that many people are very confused about. Can you give us like a simplistic understanding of what inflation is? Yeah, this is another one of those terms, kind of like property. And you know, maybe some of this terminological confusion is a result of us living inside of a state paradigm. Because we've been conditioned, right, that prices should just go up and that's a good thing and that's good for you and it's good for the economy and that house you bought in 1980 is worth, you know, five times as many dollars on paper. But what is being hidden by all of that is the depreciation of the purchasing power of each unit of money. Yeah. So this is a very long topic, but I'm going to try to summarize it as best that I can. Money's a technology that humans select, right? Just like we always select any tool, the right tool for the job. We're always looking for a better tool for the job. So we've gone from, you know, carrier pigeons to smoke signals to telegraph to digital communications, right? Same aim. We just really want to communicate with one another across space and time, but better tool for the job. So we adopt better and better tools. When it comes to money, one of the things you really want is that whatever wealth, whatever whatever you sacrifice to obtain that money, right? Assets you would sell for money, you would trade, you would sell your farm for money, right? The expectation is that that money would hold its purchasing power across time so that you could hold on to that money for five years and then five years later exchange it for a farm of roughly equal value. Yeah. At best, right? So when humans were selecting the best tool for the job when it comes to money, gold became money through this process. And the reason is, no matter how much time, effort, or energy 
humans allocated towards gold production, the supply of gold increased the most slowly, which is to say its supply was the most resistant to debasement or inflation, right? The inflation of the gold supply. And the people get hung up here too, so I'll try to expand. When you increase the number, when you increase the units of gold, you increase the supply of gold, you are effectively diluting the claims, the purchasing power of gold for the people saving in it. And this is true of any money, right? So if let me try to give this analogy, the, the Babe Ruth baseball card analogy. If there's 100 Babe Ruth baseball cards in the world, each one's worth... Uh, $10,000. Yeah. Every time, say someone discovers or finds out, oh, there's actually an extra 50 Babe Ruth baseball cards, right? Or an extra 100 or whatever it may be. You're now compromising the rarity of that baseball card. And what we would say, the, the, the analogous point in money would be you're compromising the scarcity of the money or the supply integrity. Um, you're compromising the capacity of money to hold value across time because there's more units being produced that are diluting the savings of existing savers. So I hope that made sense. And then the reason gold is selected is because it's the least, the, the asset that is most resistant to debasement. That no matter how hard we try to produce more of it, it's the thing we can produce most slowly. So if I park my economic value or wealth in this money, I know with the highest degree of certainty, I'm not going to be, no one's going to inflate it or print more gold or what have you. So gold became the global premier store of value for that reason. It's the most inflation resistant asset in the world. Now, um, problem with gold is that it's physical. So it's very hard to carry around physical gold and transact day-to-day in physical gold. So we needed to put all the gold in one place and have that custodian issue paper notes that were redeemable for the gold so we could trade more easily with each other. Now, what we had with gold, when I I said it's inflation resistant, is we had an asset that's really good at holding value across time, right? Holds purchasing power across time. This is one of the core properties of money. It's a good definition for money, actually. Another one, a tool for moving value across space and time. So gold was really good at the time dimension, suffered in the space dimension. It's physical, it's heavy. You got to secure it. You know, it's cumbersome to use. How are you going to buy a cup of coffee with gold? It's like gold dust. You know, there's too much value density per unit of gold. So we needed to centralize the custody and issue paper on top of it so that we could get a monetary technology that was good for moving value across space, right? I can now move this paper claim on gold across space very easy. Uh, and when that, that paper claim became an electronic claim, it became even easier to move the money across space. So with a gold-backed currency, we had successfully augmented money such that we had a good tool for holding value across time in gold. But we had this currency layer software layer put on top of it called currency so we could move it across space effectively. This works wonderfully. This works great. Holds value across time and moves value across space easily. The problem is, is that we introduced 
what we call in markets counterparty risk. Basically means that you need to trust that custodian that's holding the gold not to violate the contract and print more units of currency than they have actual gold and reserves. That's the core problem with a gold-backed currency. And it is that exploit that has been taken advantage of time and time and time again. You just can't trust human nature to manage the money supply. So inflation properly understood today is we got all the gold, moved it into a bank. We issued paper on top of it. I'm going to gloss over a lot of history here. By 1971, Nixon had revoked the gold standard so that the paper currency, the U.S. dollar, was no longer redeemable for gold. And I'm going to skip some nuance here, but we've now moved into this world where we think that government paper in our pocket is money. It's no longer redeemable for gold or any other commodity. So all we actually have in our pocket is a uncollateralized debt from the government. And because the money is not redeemable for anything, specifically gold, this gives the Federal Reserve, which is the Central Bank of the United States, and its and by extension, its commercial banking arms, the capacity to print new money ad infinitum, that you can just print new units of paper, as many new units of paper as the market will bear, right? You're lending them into existence. You're buying, in the case of the Fed, they're buying U.S. government debt, which are treasuries. And then the government is spending that money into existence. The money goes into banks. It's, It's lent on top of, so the money supply expands even more. But at the basis of all this is this divorce from economic reality, that the money is no longer money. We've divorced currency from money, right? That the currency is no longer redeemable for gold, which is money. And this has become a real problem, right? This is basically a source of limitless revenue for governments. And my simplest way to capture all of that in one little phrase that's resonated with people, and it's the proper way to understand inflation, in my opinion, is that inflation is legal counterfeiting. And counterfeiting is criminal inflation. There's no actual mechanical difference in the two things, right? The the crime that George Floyd, for instance, right? counterfeit $20 bill is why he was initially in custody, I think, with the police. That is the exact same action that the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, perpetrates by the trillion, right? there's, there's, There's no mechanical distinction between these two things, only a legal one. It's only a matter of which way the guns are pointed. So, and, and, That is the proper way to understand it, that the world, the problem with the world, in my estimation, is that we are governed by an institutionalized system of currency counterfeiting. And if one group of people can just produce new units of money that everyone else is forced to use, as we are forced to use the US dollar and other fiat currencies through legal tender, through capital controls, through other compulsory means, then you have given those individuals that can print money have the license and ability to steal human time, effort, and energy and all the products therefrom. 
So this is the big problem in the world that we have in a supposedly free market capitalistic West, we have an anti-capitalistic institution at the heart of every modern economy called the central bank that's used to perpetrate systemic theft. And all of everything that I just said is wrapped in this pseudoscience called Keynesian economics that justifies the monopolization of money and the printing of money. It says we actually need it, right? This is why, this is even the term inflation itself is a euphemism. It's, you're diluting the value of the asset. The only thing that's inflating as a result is the nominal price, right? It takes more dollars to buy the same thing. So the price goes up on paper. But what you don't see is the purchasing power of each unit, each dollar being diminished. Yeah. And it is this, cognit- I call this a cognitive optical illusion that people just see the number going up, right? Stocks go up, houses go up, gold, like assets just keep going up in dollar price. It disguises the actual, the debasement of purchasing power and people just fall for it. People have been falling for it for a long time. But, you know, studying the history of money will tell you pretty quickly that that illusion does not last forever. I mean, you can't fool economic reality forever. And eventually, currencies hyperinflate or economies fail as a result of this distortion. So, um, and this is where Bitcoin is very passionate, just saying like, look, we need money that nobody can counterfeit. That would be useful for everyone. Yeah, that was my next question. It was like, if we continue down this path that's been going on for so long, where do you see this heading? What do you see as the reality um, of the West, of the United States? And how is Bitcoin the answer? Or one of the answers. Well, I would like to take a page out of your guys' book, actually, and talk about the nature of truth. Um, you know, we talked about price distortion a little bit earlier. When you start printing money, basically, it becomes more difficult to understand whether a price change was a result of supply and demand changing, or if this is a consequence of the printing of money, right? You can't, now I can't tell in a world where money's being monopolized and debased, whether this price signal is telling me there's a real demand in the marketplace. The price went up because people really wanted this thing. Or if there's just a central bank policy, they just changed the amount of dollars. It creates distortions in this information system. Now, there's a saying on Wall Street that price is truth. And I think there's a lot of potency in that saying because it, again, you're, you're, you're taking all the preferences of the humans in the world and all the available supply of the commodity, whether it's copper or whatever it is, and you're saying, this is the number, right? Copper is, I'm picking a number out of the air. I don't know what copper is actually priced at. $100 an ounce. That's the truth of that asset, right? That's what... It's taking everyone's wishes and superimposing them onto the available supply of copper in the world. And it gives you one number. Like there's a lot of data and information in that one number. And one of the definitions of truth I learned from the American pragmatist, I think this was Peirce, it may have been James, said that truth is found at the end of inquiry. And so there's a subtle distinction here where we, we, again, trapped in language, we talk about truth. Like it's just, oh, there's just, there's a truth out there that you could know. 
But the reality is, I think that this huge, fluid, complex universe is much more complicated than anything we could ever fit between the ears. So, the, and the pragmatists, as I understood it, kind of made this point that there's there's the capital T truth, which is like the real, the ultimate reality of everything that is. That's beyond human comprehension on multiple levels. What we need to worry about for pragmatic reasons is the nature of this pragmatic truth, which is like we can keep inquiring deeper and deeper and deeper. There's this intelligibility to reality that we can inquire into and get closer to that capital T truth. Even if we can never reach it, um, we can develop a a more pragmatic relationship with truth, let's say. And so this idea of debasing money is actually destroying the pri- the truth-seeking mechanism, the truth-discovery mechanism of markets. So if, if price is truth, price discovery is truth-discovery for pragmatic reasons. I'm not saying we're getting to ultimate capital T truth here, but pragmatic truth emerges through the market process. Um, another more obvious definition of truth would just be like an accurate portrayal of reality, right? So as we've sort of alluded to earlier, money is meant to be a representation of human time and energy, right? This one's fairly obvious that you, why do you go to work, right? You go to work to spend your time and energy on something that's serving others in some capacity. That's a consensual exchange of your time and energy for money. The money that you receive, you then expect to be able to go back out into the market to a restaurant, on a vacation, to buy a car, whatever it is. And you want to be able to trade that representation of your time and energy called money for the time and energy of other people, right? To build the car, prepare your meal, whatever it may be. So the when we talk about truth being an accurate portrayal of reality, money is this tool we use to trade human time and energy. Time and energy are fixed for each of us, right? They're strictly finite. We only have so much time and so much energy. When you engage in a currency counterfeiting monopoly that's just producing new units of money, it's the equivalent to an institution printing new time and energy for itself while diluting everyone else, right? It, again, it's another angle on that, that aspect of systemic theft that central bank um, perpetrates. So I would argue like, okay, we have the basement of currency destroying truth as the end of inquiry in the market process. It's interrupting and confusing the market process. It's debasing the time and energy that money's intended to represent, right? That you put your hard, your blood, sweat, and tears into this thing. You want to be able to redeem it for something of equal value. Well, currency counterfeiting diminishes that too. And another definition of truth I think is really apt here is uh, Heidegger said that truth is unconcealedness, that which cannot be concealed, right? We, we, the the all-encompassing, you know, uh, nature of ultimate reality in a way. And it's always there to be seen. Like you can't necessarily perceive it or understand it, but truth is unconcealed. Truth is all-encompassing. Truth is whole, something like that. And so this gets a bit into the Bitcoin thing, but like that what we have today 
with central bank currency counterfeiting, it's a black box. You don't know how many dollars are in circulation. You don't know how many dollars will be in circulation. You don't know the criteria for central bankers deciding. Uh, we don't know who profits from it. We don't even know who owns the central banks, right? This is, it's a black box. You don't see anything totally concealed. And now the opposite of central banking, this purely opaque, dark thing is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just language. It's just open. Like there's nothing hidden inside of it. It's open source software, meaning that every aspect of its protocol is inspectable and observable to anyone, right? This is the nature of open source technologies. You can literally examine the source code down to the letter. There's not even an opportunity to conceal anything. It's absolute unconcealedness. So when I look at fiat currency, I see this institution destroying the truthfulness of money, right? Destroying price discovery, destroying individual rights to the fruits of their time and energy. And it's done through opacity and concealedness, right? Which is the destruction of Heideggerian truth. And then over here in Bitcoin, we're talking about something that's uh, you can inquire into it as much as you want. It's open source software. It has a fixed supply, so it perfectly represents the supply integrity of your time and energy that you are sacrificing to obtain it. And then the protocol itself is inspectable and observable by anyone. So it's, it is unconcealedness. It's the ultimate implementation of unconcealedness. It's open source software. So to try to take this all the way back to the original question, where is the West going? I mean, guys, the, the study of monetary history is really bleak in this regard. Like once you start debasing currency, Mises wrote about this in the 40s, there are only two possible outcomes. And this is not empirical. This is a, this is a rigorous theoretical deduction. You have only two possible outcomes once you start to debase currency. It either you keep debasing it until you hyperinflate it, or you stop debasing at some point and you have this giant crash back to economic reality. And now, if we move out of the theoretical domain into the empirical, what have humans done always? They've always given into that temptation to just keep printing, right? It's just, it's like a, it's a drug addiction that we think this little bit of, you know, we're, uh, we've fallen on economic hard times. There's not enough money to go around. We'll print just a little bit to stimulate the economy in big air quotes, and that'll get us going again and we'll get moving. Well, once you start to quote unquote stimulate the economy, what are you actually doing? You're distorting prices. You're causing capital to be misallocated. You're violating private property rights. You're confusing the market process. So it sows the seeds for the next disaster, which is even worse. And then that is used as an excuse for printing even more money. And the cycle repeats until the currency collapses. And when the currency collapses, social cohesion goes away, right? Look at, study the nature of hyperinflations. Or just think to yourself, if the money stopped working right now, how many people could you actually deal with in the world? Hopefully you have a small circle of trust, right? Family, friends, you could maybe get on with, but beyond that small circle of what? 10, 15, 12, maybe you've got 100 people, whatever. Maybe you're the coolest guy in the world. You've got 150 best friends. There's still 8 billion other people you can't interact with when the money breaks. So 
I feel like this whole conversation can kind of be correlated to like, you know, even psychological shadow work, right? Mm. Like you, you, you sow a lie, you act against the self, you do harm to another, yes. and just getting further and further and further away from the truth. And so by the time you try to recover, like the, the, the process is going to be deep, dark, and ex- incredibly mm. more difficult. And there's this increasing build of the fear of facing all the darkness, of facing all the lies that I've sowed, of facing it all. And so we just keep adding on top of it more makeup, more self-sabotage, more whatever it might be to get away from you know the, the volatility, which is actually going to bring us back to homeostasis. I think it's a beautiful... I wouldn't even say it's an analogy. I mean, I think, I think fractals are the geometry of nature, right? So things are self-similar at different scales, basically. So when you're describing shadow work at the individual level, what else would we expect the collection of all the individuals to behave like yeah. other than something like a macrocosmic individual in a way? And... um this also gets into the nature of addiction itself. I said addiction earlier, but I mean that with, with you know, I had a um, cognitive scientist on the show, John Ravakey. He speaks to this much more intelligently than I can. Uh, but he describes the nature of actual addiction as the process of reciprocal narrowing. And so, you know, rough example, um, a man with alcoholic tendencies has a bad day at work. So he goes home and he has a couple of drinks, right? Well, then he's hung over the next day, shows up late for work, that snowballs into a thing with his boss. He's in even more trouble, has an even worse day at work. So he goes home and he has a few more drinks than he had the night before. And it's a very simplified example, obviously, but that is kind of the shape of addiction that you, you build this little monster inside you that justifies more of the substance right despite it actually causing negative things in your life right you're trying to you're trying to put the band-aid on the negative things in your life but the the attempt to put the band-aid on is the actual genesis of the problems or the exacerbation of the problems right and it culminates you know in the guy either in rehab or dead in a ditch somewhere and it's very structurally similar to the printing of money, as I described earlier. It's like you print a little bit of money to try and fix the economic problem. You cannot fix an economic problem with printing money because all you're doing is shifting. This is a key point too. It's not creating any new wealth. If I create new pieces of paper called dollars, I haven't created any new factories, equipment, knowledge. I haven't satisfied any human wants. I have just shifted ownership of wealth from the hands of people saving in dollars into the hands of those receiving the newly printed dollars first. So it's just theft. It can't, you can't solve problems by stealing. And this, it's an addiction, right? It's a self, there's a self-deception element to it where we, we're like, we're literally, yeah. And the people that run the world today are telling us we needed to print $6 trillion because of a pandemic the past two years. If you don't just stop and sit with that for a few minutes and realize how asinine and insane that is. Yeah. And the, the addiction is perpetuated by our adversity to pain. Yes. Yes. Right. What? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's you. It's an analgesic, right? You're running from the pain, 
right? You're, you're taking that next drink or you're printing that, you're engaging that next round yeah. of quantitative easing, trying to kick the can down the road the and stave off the pain. Yeah. And all you're doing is exacerbating the ultimate and inevitable day of reckoning. You're yeah. going to print some more money. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. It's, um, it's unbelievable. So like, I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, last thing I would say about that, just hmm. again, check out the episode with Verveke. Yeah. The opposite of the reciprocal narrowing of addiction is the reciprocal opening of love. Yeah. When you're engaged in a real authentic relationship with someone, you want to open up more and be more vulnerable and show them the good, the bad, and the ugly such that they feel more comfortable and confident to now open up to you more and you can know them more deeply for the purposes of them knowing you more deeply. Like it's this yeah. equal and opposite beautiful force. It's so true, because if you think about that, even just sociopolitically, if someone got on TV, a politician or someone was like, hey, listen, you know, we fucked up the last couple of years. You know, there's some things that we thought were were going to be a certain way and they weren't. And like, you know, we're going to try to be better now. Mm -hmm. Granted, they could be just manipulating. But who does that? Like, you know, how often do you see a politician or or or, or, or CEO express that level of excuse me, that level of vulnerability? No, I agree completely. And I, you know, I'll, I'll just share this. And it, I never know where to go in these conversations because I've been going down this rabbit hole for so long. You don't know, you know, where to meet the audience exactly. But my current view is that there's a deep continuity between the complex system that is the individual human being and the complex system of networked human beings we call the global economy right there's a deep continuity between kind of like the fractal thing we just described like the dark night of the soul or uh, i forget how you put it that an individual faces shadow work. Yep. shadow work there's some manifestation of that in a global economic sense well i mean it's, it's the great hermetic principle as above so below as within so without a, yes right. perfect and you know what is then facilitating the exchange between the micro and the macro. And if I'm looking at the answer to that question in just an economic sense, the answer is money, right? Like language matters too, but what do we say? Actions speak louder than words. We understand that. Well, what is capital, right? Capital, like the actual stuff we're making is the result of many thousands of actions. So it's one thing for me to say, I'll put money into a deal. It's another thing for me to sign the document, right? That's a much higher signal that, oh, I'm probably going to put money in the deal. But you're not going to count money in that deal until the money hits the account and it can't be reversed, right? The check clears or the, the Bitcoin settles, whatever it may be. So there's a very strong signaling mechanism that we're we're tampering with, we're tampering with the money and it's, it creates feedback. I think psychologically people are more likely to engage in self-deception. Yeah. You know, you could get it like in Bitcoin circles, we talk about fiat food, fiat medicine, fiat culture, right? There are near, apparently near ubiquitous, but definitely pervasive effects from the corruption of money. It tends to corrupt everything that it touches. And, you know, I think if you just, take a look around the world today, you'd be hard pressed to find a better explanation for what's going on. Yep. 
Well, I, I, I see it simply as a magnifier. You know, it is simply magnifies what that individual already is, is what kind of what kind of qualities, the level of their character that they've actually developed within. And, you know, when even like the, this whole concept of welfare, all we're doing is distorting the reality principle. We're distorting the relationship yeah. between rights and responsibility, which is mm-hmm. obviously, as we've discussed, the foundation of us solving anything in, re- in, in, yes. in reality, I guess. Yeah. I agree with you that it's, there's a magnifying effect, right? That, um, yeah. And money has this effect, right? It, uh, someone's described it as kind of like alcohol, that if you're kind of naturally a, a happy-go-lucky person and you have a few drinks, well, you tend to be a little bit more happy-go-lucky. But if you're brooding and dark inside and you have a few drinks, it sort of amplifies your personality yeah. in that way. I'm a little hesitant to leave it at just that, though, because I think of people growing up in situations of extreme depravity or poverty yeah right that where you're kind of like forced into survival it's like steal or starve kind of thing and so that there is this element of values being imposed upon you through incentives you could say yeah and so it's not just like maybe that kid that's stealing instead of starving maybe he has really goodness in his heart right he whatever he could be the next mother Teresa, the next steve jobs you don't know but when he's forced into this situation of economic dispossession, his character development path can go off course by no fault of his own, right? It could just be the world. And so, there, you know, there's this feedback, I guess, is what yeah, I'm getting but at. He's, he's also responding to the corrupt system, right? The, That's the, what the, I'm saying. The distortion in the system, yeah. That's not, so sometimes I get into these conversations and people yeah. are like, well, you just need to fix the individuals. I'm like, I don't think you can just yeah. fix the individuals. There's also the systemic angle like if we could decorrupt money or whatever that means you know just move on to a bitcoin standard then remove theft from the global economy then maybe we would there'd be that fractal reflection in the individual right people would be less thieving overall yeah so where does the where does bitcoin receive its value from you know we're talking about the gold standard and superimposing money like how does that concept work in for bitcoin yeah it's a great question um again we're going to compress a lot into not so many minutes here, but yeah. One of the ways I've explained why gold became money, and this is actually a great answer, one of the most useful answers to the question, what is money? What properties are they seeking in the tool called money over time? And I've spoken at length about this in several places, so I'm just going to briefly go through it. But my interpretation of what people seek in good money is they want something that is divisible. Durable, recognizable, portable, and scarce. Those are the five properties of good money. That's why gold was selected. Because basically over a whole history of experimentation, it was determined that monetary metals best satisfied those properties. They were the best tool for the job. Silver, bronze, gold. Of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce as we said earlier, meaning that no matter how hard we tried to increase its supply, its supply was the most resistant to inflation or the least flexible, right? You couldn't change the supply that much. That made it a very useful store value asset. It also highlights where gold suffered, right? Gold is not portable, not that portable relative to paper dollars or electronic dollars. That's much more useful for transacting across space, as we described earlier. So. What made gold good money is that people 
consensually selected it as the right tool for the job, just the best tool we had for money. Um, and, you know, I specifically say a gold-backed currency, as we described earlier. If you could trust human nature, if we weren't sinful, corruptible creatures, gold-backed currency would work great. But human fallibility being what it is, you can't trust humans to safeguard the money supply. So if we take that framing for why gold became money, it had the most divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, scarcity, and we apply that to an examination of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is infinitely divisible. One Bitcoin right now is divisible into 100 million subunits called Satoshis. Um, the software protocol can be updated in a backwards compatible way to increase that divisibility further. So it basically has infinite divisibility. Bitcoin is perfectly durable in the sense that it's just distributed information. The example I like to cite here is the Bible. You can burn as many physical copies of the Bible as you want. But that will do nothing to destroy the Bible itself, right? The Bible is this distributed set of information that is so deeply permeated uh, the collective human consciousness that it's not going anywhere, right? It, it's just pure distributed information, right? Bitcoin's the same. It's just every node of Bitcoin is running in the entirety of its history. You could stamp out as many nodes as you want, but every time someone else boots up the software, they have the whole history of Bitcoin right there. Um, obviously, in terms of portability, Bitcoin way outperforms gold because I mean, that was a big drawback with gold, as we said earlier. But Bitcoin being just digital information, you can move it at the speed of light. Can't get much more, more portable than that in this universe. Recognizability has to do with authenticating the veracity of the money. So you, you may have heard the term sound money. This was in regard to the sound gold would make when you dropped it from a certain height. It, it gave a very particular resonance. And this um, gave credence to its authenticity, that it wasn't you know, lead-painted gold, things like this. Yep. There were also these techniques called uh, assaying. People used to assay gold, A-S-S-A-Y. And they would just you know, do these certain measurement techniques to make sure it was gold, basically. Um, Bitcoin has this radically new feature set for recognizability that you can audit the total supply. So just by running a node, you can audit the whole world. You can say, what's the actual total supply of Bitcoin? And like, spoiler alert, the answer is always less than 21 million, right? That's the most Bitcoin there can ever be is 21 million. And so it's totally resistant to counterfeiting. Right. Yeah. I don't need to rely on the sound Bitcoin makes when I drop it or like, you know, some little caliper measurements of the Bitcoin. Well, there is no physical Bitcoin, but you can know with certainty, right, that the Bitcoin you have is yours and that it's a guaranteed fraction of a total supply of 21 million. So, you know, no one can debase you through inflation. And that leads into the final property, which is scarcity itself. Um, I, I, I want to be very particular here. Scarcity occurs wherever demand exceeds supply. So when there's more wants for a thing than there are of the thing to go around, people need to compete for it. 
and they compete for it through the market process, basically. Um, it's different than value. Obviously, oxygen, very valuable to human life, but there's no price on it. Why is that? Because there's so much supply in the atmosphere that the supply exceeds the demand. So oxygen is free. Um, money is kind of interesting when it comes to scarcity because since money lays claim to everything else, it's basically always scarce as a concept, at least. People always want more money because money can be used to obtain anything that the market can, can generate. So what we really want and what we really mean when we say scarcity, or what I mean when I say scarcity of money, is I'm talking about the integrity of the supply. Again, this is why gold was favored as money historically. It had the most integral, most predictable supply over time. So I know that whatever fraction of gold that I own, I won't be debased. And with Bitcoin, we've perfected that, right? You can know with perfect certainty that if you hold 100 Bitcoin, you have a 100 out of a possible 21 million forever. There's no one that can ever do anything about that. And that's better than gold too, because we don't know the future of gold, right? We could figure out, we could mine ocean floors, we could mine asteroids, we could figure out how to make gold more cost-effectively in a lab. All of these things could compromise its integrity as a store of value. And the same is not true for Bitcoin, right? There's no way to increase the supply. At least no one's figured out how you could possibly increase the supply of Bitcoin beyond 21 million. So I think with Bitcoin, Satoshi has effectively invented a virtually perfect money, right? Infinitely divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, and perfectly scarce. Thanks for sharing, man. Um, definitely a lot to consider for sure. I know you've got limited time. Um, I've got one more question for you. So that's all dependent on the amount of people that agree to those qualities, right? Or the, 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 it's, it's, it's a network effect, essentially. Yep. Um, so can it be banned? What if they turn the power off? What are your thoughts on, I guess, those two questions? Yeah, just speak to the properties of money first. Hmm. Um, the properties that I'm trying to highlight there, this is what people have selected for in good money historically. And I feel very confident about that. But what you're saying is, and you're right, demand is subjective, right? I can't say objectively humans will always choose these things for money. Um, but what I can say, and this is um, somewhat more axiomatic, I guess, people don't like to be stolen from, right? That's pretty fair to say, I think. Maybe not universal, maybe there's a few exceptions, whatever. But in general, people don't like to be stolen from. If you're saving, if you're holding savings in a currency that someone else can print and debase, then you're being stolen from. That's right. If you're holding savings in an asset that people cannot arbitrarily print or debase, you're saving in something that cannot be used to steal from you as much. That's why gold was a better long-term store value than dollars. That's why Bitcoin is better than gold. So one of the ways I view this is it's not as more inflation, taxation, regulation is pressed upon people. People in pursuit of their own individual economic livelihoods are forced to evaluate other options. Yeah. And the most resistant option, right? The most, the, the lowest 
the form of money with the lowest counterparty risk, as we described earlier, the counterparty risk, which you could define counterparty risk as like a violation of contract. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you could think of Bitcoin as like an inviolable contract. It's like you're holding this fixed amount of money in that way that no one can steal, no one can flee, no one can violate. So in a world where government overreach is increasing, right? More wealth redistribution, more theft, more confiscation, more taxation. People are kind of like through osmotic pressure almost in the pursuit of their own survival and self-interest pushed into a more untouchable asset, let's say, a less seizable asset. Yeah. More inflation-resistant assets. And at the very end of that, that particular spectrum is Bitcoin. So it's like the ultimate safe haven asset in a world plagued by wealth redistribution schemes. Now, what happens if they turn out the power and can they ban it? I'll start with banning it. Um, I would point people here actually to an episode I did with Preston Pish and his investors podcast, BTC001. I go into depth on that, but there was a, Bitcoin's just information, first of all. So to ban Bitcoin in the United States, at least, you'd have to overturn the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. There is some case precedents for this. Um, the feds try to classify pretty good privacy software, which is PGP software. They tried to classify it as munitions. I think this was back in the 90s, so that you could not export PGP software outside of the U.S., and that entire case took a turn against the feds when someone printed out PGP on paper and said, look, here it is. This is PGP software. It's information on paper, obviously protected under the First Amendment. How can you classify this as munitions? And so since then, we have had the case precedent that open source software is protected under the First Amendment in the United States. Even if that was overturned and you try to ban it, you get into some really weird things. When you make language illegal again, it's like, yeah. what? I can't wear a t-shirt with a certain word. I can't say certain words. Colors can be illegal. Like it, math can be illegal. Like it doesn't make any sense. You get into yep. la la land really quick. Now the power going off is interesting because this does highlight a vulnerability to the extent that your energy that you are dependent on a centralized power grid. That is the extent to which you can be shut out of the Bitcoin mining network. But to try the the only way to stop Bitcoin through this attack vector would be turning off the power worldwide forever. You'd have to stop the production of electricity. Yeah. Or well, that would that would be necessary to stop it. That's and that's very far fetched, as far as I can tell. I mean, if we yeah. did have some type of cataclysm that caused that, we'd probably have bigger things to worry about. Um, yeah, like we couldn't do this podcast anymore, obviously. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So, uh, and if anything, these type, and these are good questions that come up a lot. But in pursuing the answers to them, you end up in these really fantastical far-flung, like, low-probability situations where you're like, well, the world, like, really needs to implode to a point to where we're going back to the Stone Age for Bitcoin to not work. So if that eventuality is not part of your model, then Bitcoin will continue to exist. And if Bitcoin continues to exist and humans continue to print money, then Bitcoin continues to outcompete all inferior forms of money. Yeah. 
and people in pursuit of their own livelihood choose the best money available to them. And so far as I can tell, Bitcoin is the best money we will ever have available to us. I, I completely agree with you, man. Those last two questions were sent in. Thanks, to, thanks for answering them. <laughs> Happy to Robert, I think your message is an incredibly important one. Um, just thank you so much for for your knowledge and for how much you've invested in sharing knowledge in this in this arena, particularly. Thank you so much for your time. Um, anything you'd like to leave our audience with in terms of where you'd like to guide them? No, I, I really appreciate you guys having me, and I'm I'm glad you're talking about truth. That is a very poorly understood topic these days. So um, it's it's good to help people equip themselves with the right tools to, to investigate truth. And I guess the last thing I would say is just, I think the most important promise of Bitcoin, and we didn't get into this, but um, central banking is used to fund global warfare. And so to the extent that we can devitalize the central bank, that we can move our wealth into an alternative system, is the same degree to which we can reduce the probability of World War I and World War II happening again. Fiat currencies were indispensable to the scale, scope, and severity yep. of those conflicts in the 20th century. And at rock bottom, I think Bitcoin is this peaceful humanitarian mission, this ethical alternative to the monopolization and counterfeiting of currency. Um, so if you want to vote against the possibility of World War III, then consider studying and perhaps saving in Bitcoin. Awesome. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Um, we'll see you next time. Take care. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.